to take you to 1 Peter. Um, as I said at the beginning, we do, we do believe that the, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us and addresses us today, personal words, um, through these words written thousands of years ago. Um, I'm going to pray, and then Mark is going to come and read, and then Scott is going to come and speak to us. Um, it says in the Old Testament, uh, God speaking, this is the one I esteem, um, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Um, Lord, this evening, please give us minds and hearts that are humble before you. And we want you to speak to us and address us and correct us and teach us what is true, uh, because we want to follow you truly. And please do that. As Mark reads and as Scott speaks to us, would we hear your voice? Um, and more than that, would you help us to be humble people who respond to you um, in humble faith? We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So as Chris said, um, the reading's on um, page 1219. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power have been guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was in indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who are raised from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. made for someone three feet taller than me. Um, can you help? Thanks. <laughs> I was commenting to Calvin before on the inappropriateness of Chris Lowe as a name, whether it should be Chris High instead. Uh, if you could keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter, uh, um, as Chris mentioned just before, we're j- just looking at the first two verses tonight, uh, which uh, are pretty densely packed together uh, with quite a lot of stuff there. Um, so we'll work our way through it together. Who are you? It's a simple question, but it's one that can be quite complex to answer, and we answer it. We tend to answer it in different ways depending on the context we're in. I'm Scott, uh, but I'm also the father of my boys. I am the husband of my wife. I am the son of my parents. Who am I changes depending on the relationships we're in. It's a question of identity. And our identity, it might be more acute for some of us and less for some. Some go through a lot of kind of existential angst about who they are. Others are fairly happy with who they are. But for all of us, none of us like it when someone gets our name wrong or repeatedly gets it wrong. And we correct someone when they misspell our name. It's such a basic question, but it's vital to each of us because it goes to the heart of our self-identity. But what if we were to ask ourselves what God thinks of us? If we were to ask not ourselves but God who we are, what would he say? Would he say a Christian? When you describe yourself to people in terms of your Christian faith, what do you say about yourself? Are you a Christian? I go to the Church of England or the Anglican Church. I'm a Protestant maybe. I'm Reformed or Evangelical or whatever else it is that we use to describe our faith. What is our identity, though, in God's eyes? It probably doesn't surprise you that there were no Anglicans in the early church. There were no evangelicals either. There were no Reformed people, nor were there Protestants. What may surprise you is that when the Church of Christ was in its complete infancy, when it was first formed, nobody was called a Christian either. Maybe you've noticed, maybe you haven't, but there are only three places in the Bible where people are actually called Christians. One of them's in this letter. Peter tells us that we're not to be ashamed of the name Christian. It sounded like people were using it as a term of abuse. Luke tells us in Acts that it was first used in Antioch 
that people were first called Christians, a decade or two after Jesus rose from the dead and nowhere near Jerusalem where the first people were Christians. If that's the case then, what were Christians originally called? How did they describe themselves? What was their identity before others, before themselves, and most importantly, before God? How did God see them? The Apostle Peter, if God himself rarely calls us Christian, then how does he introduce this letter? When he's addressing it to this early church, uh, he wrote to a group of people, you can see all the names there, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Um, Just think of Turkey when you think of all those names. That's uh, the location of all of those places. When Peter wrote to that group of Christians living in Turkey, how did he address them? How did God address them? Because in the way he addresses them, he gives us, in turn, a, a picture of our identity in this world and before God that is basic to who we are and is also vital to who we are. So you can see there in verse 1, right at the outset, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, whatever that means. We are exiles of the dispersion. When he addresses this letter, he doesn't call them Christians. He doesn't call them saints, brothers, servants of Jesus, as other letters might do. He chooses to call them exiles. As far as this world is concerned, you and I, if you have come to Christ, are exiles here. Like travellers in a foreign land, we have yet to return home. Actually, you can see from the outline, uh, which I hope uh, you've got beside you, it says feeling out of place at the top. I actually call it away from home. I'm not quite sure how the feeling out of place gets there. But we are people who are away from home. Sojourners is kind of a more old term for it. Temporary residents or aliens, foreigners. Our identity, our centre, is not defined by where we are, where we live at the moment, but where we don't live at the moment. Now, as most of you know, and you can probably tell by the accent, uh, the Newlings are here just for a few years in the United Kingdom. Uh, We've chosen the wrong time to come. Australia's worst performance in the Olympics uh, in a long time. And uh, Britain, I guess they're doing okay. Um, But while we're here, we can't actually return home um, with our children. uh, The the flights are just too long and um, we don't have that kind of money anyway. But our son Titus was born a year ago this week. He's never seen Australia. It's perfection, koalas, kangaroos, the sun and warmth and beaches, the light. (laughs) He's never seen Australia, but he's an Australian citizen. Never set foot on its land, but he belongs to that country and he has its passport. The government has guaranteed all the blessings and privileges that come with being an Australian, guaranteed his ability to enter that country and given him a taste of that now in that the government actually pays us to help Titus live now. He waves Australian flags for the Olympics. I had to change my sermon at this point. I said in their victories, but it's actually in their victory. (laughs) 
His food is Vegemite, and he's being brought up in the Australian canon of literature with Australian stories and play school on the telly. You and I, though, were born into a living hope, as you can see there in verse 3. New birth into a living hope. Whether that was a year ago or just this last week, you and I have never seen this new creation. We have never seen its perfection, its light that is so bright that we don't need a sun because the Lamb himself, Jesus, is the sun that gives light. But we are citizens of this home of righteousness. And it's a place that Jesus not only has prepared for us, but guarantees for us with the sprinkling of his blood, as it says in verse 2. He guarantees our ability to enter that country. He has given a taste of it now with his spirit in us and all kinds of other things. We celebrate his victory and we grow up on the real food of his word, the canon of literature that he has given us, his word, the Bible. When we became Christians, we lost our citizenship in this world. We changed allegiances. We switched sides. We have a new king. As Peter says a bit later on, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have a fundamentally new identity. Like Titus, even though he has never set foot in Australia, is an Australian with all of its benefits and restrictions. We are citizens of a new kingdom. We have not been there yet, but we wait to go home. But that means more than just our identity. Why is it significant? Because identity is more than just who we are, but it informs our actions. A citizen of a country reflects certain things about that country, our accents or our choice of words, who we support in the Olympics. Uh, Just this week, um, people have been noticing uh, not uh, just Ian Thorpe's accent, though Australians will call him Thorpey and you all insist on calling him Ian Thorpe, Uh, but they've noticed a lot of people apparently have been offended at the way he speaks in uh, the interviews because he keeps saying look at the beginning of every sentence, which apparently one of my English friends says is quite alarming to them, uh, which is a very British way of saying things. But uh, in Australia, when you say look at the beginning of a sentence, you're actually being polite, you're just being nice, but apparently everyone over here thinks it's being aggressive. Um, When you belong to a country and their culture, it affects the way you act and it's different in different places. As people of a new kingdom, of God's kingdom, it affects the way we act because we no longer live for this world, its passions and desires. Though all others may do evil, we will hold to what is good because we are citizens of this new kingdom which we will come home to on the day of salvation. We haven't seen it, but it's our home. 
And it's not like we hold dual citizenship either. Being a Christian is not a veneer, a coat of paint, a layer over our normal life. It's not the extra. It's not the quirky thing at work or uni that makes you you. One person plays the Krillin, you like Vegemite, I like karaoke, I'm a Christian. It's not just a thing that you tack on to yourself or goes alongside of everything else about you. It is our very self. It is our fundamental identity. As Paul says, the old has gone, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Our identity results in action and different action. Who we are defines what we do, what we say, what we think, what we feel. Consequences for how we live in this world. And those consequences can sometimes cause tensions, can sometimes cause testing, can sometimes cause trials, and can sometimes cause temptations. And that's the very reason why Peter has written this letter. Being in this world but not of this world causes certain tensions in our lives. Peter picks up the theme in chapter 2. He says, As aliens and strangers in the world, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We are to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Who we are defines what we do, and it means living a different life. He says again later, For the time is past doing what the Gentiles do, what the nations do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, they mock you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We no longer hold citizenship in this world, but we don't leave the world. And that's exactly the point of this letter. And that is exactly why we need to have a firm grasp that our citizenship is in heaven. That when the testing comes, that when the trials come, when the temptations come, we understand why it is happening. There are going to be times when our status as foreigners and exiles are going to be very apparent to us. Like the accent grates or a custom offends There will be times when our determination to live as citizens of God's kingdom will mean that our lives are completely at odds with the world around us. We won't cheat on our tax returns or benefit claims. We don't steal movies and music and games from the net. We don't drive illegally. In fact, we like being honest. We like spending our Sundays at church gathering together to hear God's word. We like to give money and time and help to those in need. We prefer to stay sober rather than get drunk. It's not like Christians have a monopoly on these things by any means. Peter's talking in generalisations in this letter, he has to. But whatever it is, as Paul says, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will face trial, will face testing, And that's exactly where Peter's letter goes in the next few verses. If they hate me, says Jesus, they will hate you also. At some point, our faith will be tested. Our true citizenship will be called on. 
and we must stand firm, proving the genuineness of our faith. But this fact that we might be in the world but not of the world, that we might uh, uh, still live in the world as it is and yet be citizens of a new creation, one that we wait for, one that has not occurred yet, is, is waiting for us in the new creation. This is not a malfunction in God's plan, as if he didn't know what he was doing. We are his children. And as we've already read uh, from John earlier in the evening, in the evening or at the beginning of the service. He gave the right to become children of God, as he says a bit further on in that same passage, not by our Father's will or human decision. It is God's will, God's decision, that we should be his children. See, we are not just, um, as it says in verse 1 there, we are not just exiles of the dispersion. We are elect (laughs) exiles of the dispersion. God has chosen us. God has chosen you and me. It is he who has given us this citizenship, our passports to the new creation. And his choice is not a random choice. It's not an accidental one. It is a deliberate one according to his foreknowledge, as it says in verse 2. Beforehand, God knew and God decided that he wanted you to be his child that he wanted you to be part of the new creation, that he wanted you to be one of his new people, his holy nation, who would declare his praises. If you are a Christian, you are not one of his children because of a legal technicality or a loophole, as if really God hates you and doesn't want you to be part of his kingdom and he's only letting you in because he has to let you in because you know of the gospel and all that kind of thing. God wants you there. You are precious to him. You are loved by him. You were foreknown by him. You were elected. You were chosen by him. And he knew what he was doing when he left you in this world for a time. The testing of your faith that it might be proved genuine. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are aliens in this world. It is by God's choice, but it's also for his good purposes. He knows not just what he is doing with us, but why he is doing it. He hasn't just chosen us, but he has chosen us for good. As it says there in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood. There's lots of big words and concepts there um, that are drawing on all kinds of Old Testament imagery. But it was God's choice to sanctify us by the Spirit, to make us holy. That's all that sanctify means, to set apart, to make holy. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ. Once again, our identity shapes who we are and what we do. But more than that, for sprinkling with his blood. Those uh, images uh, drawn from the book of Exodus and the idea of covenant, of God making a covenant, drawing us out to be his beloved people, his special treasure, 
to be obedient to him, but to be redeemed, saved by him, to be his redeemed people who declare his praises. And that's exactly where Peter goes in chapter 2, of being this people, this nation, saved by Jesus for his glory as we obey him. But there are going to be times when each of us, and some of us here tonight, may already be in this situation. There are going to be times when each of us seriously questions whether God's way is better. There are going to be times when we will doubt that God's purposes in saving us, in choosing us, are actually for our good. That perhaps it's better to not be a Christian. Perhaps it's better to not live this distinctive life, to give in to temptation, to run away from testing and trial, to live a life that is no different from the world. That's exactly the same question that Asaph asked in Psalm 73. He saw all of the unrighteous getting ahead and he was left behind. And he said, why? Why is it like this? But then the turning point in the psalm comes when he considers their end, where they will end up on that final day, where they will end in eternity. And he realises that God's way is good. And that is exactly, again, where Peter directs our thinking. Our identity is fundamentally future-orientated. Our citizenship is in this heavenly kingdom, the new creation. We look forward to the home of righteousness, as he says in 2 Peter. We are defined by the future when we see their end and when we see the end God has in store for us. We can be comforted in knowing God's good purposes in sprinkling us with the blood of Jesus. One Peter addresses more than just our our identity, however. We live in a very individualistic world, and when we think of identity, we tend to think of ourselves. But identity is more than just that. Identity is involved in belonging as well. Even those who try to define their identity by what they're not, um, rebels, uh, for want of a better word, they tend to band together, to belong together in their defiance against other people. I still remember um, back in my teenage days, at least, all of the music stores, they really don't exist very much anymore, but uh, all of the music stores where I lived, the alternative section was actually bigger than the mainstream section because so many people were defining themselves against the main that actually alternative had become its own grouping, its own culture. When they went to their concerts, they all dressed alternatively, but they all looked exactly the same as each other. We, when we have our identity, it's more than just an individual thing. There is an idea of belonging. And really, is there any week that testifies to this more than this past week? I'm an Australian, and yet I wanted to be a British person last night. Who didn't want to be? Australia, you know, 12 years ago with the Sydney Olympics, we had our defining moment 
um, Kathy Freeman running the 400 metres and hearing it. I remember where I was. Um, everyone remembers where they were when it happened. I was in the stadium 500 metres away and we could hear it happening. We knew she won because of the noise. You had that moment last night where everyone, their identity is bound together in celebration and joy. Now, I've used a lot of Olympics kind of imagery uh, tonight. I'm sorry if you hate sport and you're here because you don't want to know about the tennis, but um, uh, please don't hear me saying that when we no longer have citizenship in this world, that we no longer belong to this world, don't hear it as saying that you must no longer be British, you must no longer... You, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, the Apostle Paul, for instance, in the New Testament, he was a Roman citizen and made very free use of that when it was helpful. Um, uh, we are still belong in that sense in the world. The way Peter talks about no longer being in uh, belonging to this world has to do with the passions and desires of the world and its morality and its hatred of God. But there's one word that I've left out from these opening two verses that we need to think about in terms of belonging. We're not just elect exiles, <coughs> chosen exiles, but we elect exiles of the dispersion, scattered. Again, he's using Old Testament imagery um, that we don't need to look at tonight. But our Christian identity is in part characterised in this age, not by being together in one place, which is actually the hope of the new creation, where all tribes, uh, every tongue, language, nation is gathered around God in praise of him. That's actually the hope of church and the heavenly reality of church as well. But in this present age, we are scattered. And when we find each other, however, we belong with each other. And there is a commonality and a bond that transcends all of those differences. And so we seek each other out. You may or may not have noticed it, there was a lot of celebration going on in the Olympics last night with gold medals for a certain country. Uh, but in the midst of all that, there was actually another race that was going on. It was the women's 100-metre final, um, and a Jamaican woman won. And uh, she collapsed on the ground, you know, obviously very happy, uh, praising God. And yet the cameraman didn't know what to do with it, so he kind of ducked off a bit. And then, actually, she won the 100 metres. I better put it back on. Uh, and yet she was still praising God. She'd gone on to thanking Jesus Christ. Um, the cameraman didn't really know what to do with it. Um, kind of like what Peter says here, they're surprised when they don't join with you, when they, they find it hard to understand when we're different. And yet there was an... I don't know whether the woman's a Christian or not. I assume she is. She's giving glory and praise to God and to Christ. Um, but there's an affinity that we have with that woman simply because, though we might be scattered from different countries, there's something more fundamental about us. This letter was written to a bunch of churches in what is now Turkey, and one of those places is Galatia. In the early church, a man from Gaul in France went down to Galatia, where there is a Gaul colony, um, and he went to church there, and he was amazed not because he could understand the language, because they were both from Gaulish descent, though that was true. The thing that he was amazed about was their commonality of faith. That though he could have travelled across Europe 
from one end to the other. And yet when he met with God's people, there was commonality. Though they might have been scattered in, uh, in, in all kinds of ways, when they met each other, they believed the same thing. And the thing that they declared to each other that he knew that they believed the same thing was actually an early edition of what we call the Apostles' Creed that we still say in churches today. We might be scattered through time and space, and yet there is a commonality for Christians. We belong with each other. We seek each other out. And so if you cast your mind back to the way Chris introduced church tonight, we gather together and it is of vital and fundamental significance. Back when we were in Australia, we used to go to a church. It was a very small church. There's about 75 people in the church. There's an English pizza shop owner. There was a Chinese doctor, a Lebanese teacher, an Australian architect, I have to say that, even though it was in Australia, because there were barely any Australians in the church. There was a Maltese musician, a Polish carpenter, a German administrator, a Vietnamese mother, and a Sudanese refugee. In all, there were 17 different nationalities in this tiny church of about 75 people. And yet it is the most welcoming church that we've ever been to. Not to put you know, us down or anything like that but because they knew that they belonged with each other. Though they might in every real term be scattered in the world's eyes from their own cultures and even within Australia, yet they belong together. You see, we often get so individualised in our thinking that when we read things like 1 Peter, we think of it purely in terms of ourselves. And we run the danger of nasal gazing, navel gazing and just thinking about our own subjective experience and feelings. But the reality is our existence, our identity, our belonging is together and it is corporate. You might not be feeling out of place at the moment, but the person next to you may just well be. You might not be tested to stand firm at the moment, but the person next to you may just well be. You may be very comfortable with your hope in the new creation and your citizenship there, but the person next to you may be seriously wondering whether it is better to return to the ways of the world and to give up on this heavenly citizenship. Our identity and our belonging go together. Maybe not you at the moment, but maybe the person next to you. And so as we arm and equip ourselves with this godly perspective, with God's perspective of who we are, chosen, elect exiles, travellers, foreigners, scattered, let's remind ourselves that this was God's choice and he knew it was for our good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus Christ, for his blood shed for us, sprinkled on us to set us apart, to make us obedient to you. 
Father, thank you that your choice was according to your foreknowledge. We praise you. We praise you for the hope of a new creation. Father, as we feel away from home, we pray that you would fill us with joy and gladness of the certainty of that home you have guaranteed. And so, Father, please multiply peace and grace to us. Amen.